Today, on episode number 787 of CXO Talk, we're discussing data and intuition, the role in marketing. We call that quantitative marketing. Our guests are two folks from the Columbia Business School at Columbia University in New York City. Oded Netzer is the Vice Dean for Research and a professor and author of the new book, Decisions Over Decimals. And Amy Jake is the Chief Marketing Officer of the institution. For me, marketing is the part of any organization that is in charge of facilitating and enabling a successful transaction with the customer. And successful, by the way, could mean profit if it's for profit, could be engagement, for example, if it's non-profit. But the ones who are in charge of making sure that such uh, transactions, relationships do exist, and, and now you want to layer on it the quantitative part of it in order to create these successful interactions, I really need to understand if I'm the firm who's on the other side, and it's not exactly the other side, who are my partners, my customers. And for that, I need a lot of data and a lot of information about my, my customers and who they are and good understanding of who I am, what are my capabilities. And, and that, again, requires data and, and analytics. And specifically, the analytics is often done in order to try and understand this match, the match, be- the match between the customer and and the, the, the firm and what the firm has to offer and even changing what the firm has to offer to make sure it matches what, what customers want. Particularly in, 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 in recent years where a lot of the effort uh, went towards is getting better and better understanding of the customers because the, the better and the more we understand the customers, the better we can actually serve them what, what it is that they want. And that requires a lot of data, a lot of analytics and a lot of quantitative marketing. Amy, what is the impact of this data-driven approach on your work right now? There was a period of time where it was somewhat difficult to explain to senior leadership the value of marketing. The increase in the data that we have, the ability to show quantitatively and to connect an action that marketing has taken to a bottom line impact, that's what a lot of the data has done. It has allowed us to be better marketers. We understand a lot more, as Oded was saying, about the audience. Uh, We can engage in different tactics and strategies. Personalization is so important. Uh, You know, we are inundated with material. And it is very difficult for us as humans to have that much flying at us and to be able to figure out what to pay attention to. You know, cognitively, if there's this influx of information, We have to pick, we have to sort, we have to think about what makes sense for us to pay attention to, what limited time do we have, and how do we react to that. And in mass marketing, sometimes you can get that benefit with your audience, but more often what we're seeing is that the more personalized that the marketing is, the more likely that person who is otherwise inundated will take a moment, will stop, and will engage with you. And the only way to do that is to be able to leverage the data that you have to say, this is the right course for this person, this is the right path, this is the right next step for person A, but for person B, it's going to be a little bit different. And every time that our audience or our consumer or customer has that experience, the more likely they are to come back because there's a benefit for them. They're getting what they need, they've seen that it works, they know it was worth their time. And so I think data both helps us on the strategy side 
develop better strategies. It helps us on uh, showing results uh, to senior leaders, to to shareholders, to stakeholders, um, and it helps us to deliver a better experience to the customers. So they're all wrapped up in, in sort of one larger marketing effort, um, but I think those three components and thinking about it in those ways is really helpful. I've been teaching the marketing core for quite a few years here at Columbia Business School. It's probably the course that has changed the most, actually, um, out of any core course we teach and the reason is that the world of marketing is changing tremendously. Uh, if you think, for example, about advertising, advertising, again, many of us have watched Mad Men, right? And that's, that's really the old days of marketing. But even up to the early 2000s, the center of advertising was here in New York, was in Madison Avenue. If you think about what are the three biggest advertising companies in the world, they're not anymore in New York and they're not any more advertising company companies. There are Google, Facebook, and, and Amazon. These, are, these companies sit in Silicon Valley and they sit in, in, in Seattle, which means they are technology companies, and with that comes the quantitative aspect of marketing. Amy made a very interesting point. She spoke about the enhanced ability to connect the marketing activities back to impact on the organization. Can you talk about that? Because that, that's what business leaders ultimately care about, right? We're, we're spending a certain amount of money on our marketing and what is the ultimate impact and how do we measure that? The, one of the biggest impact of quantitative marketing on the world of marketing was this notion of ROI and the return on investment, right? I mean, well, the famous quote, and, you know, half of my marketing expenses are well spent. I just don't know which half. And then came the world of online marketing, right? Then came the world of digital marketing. And with this promise of we're going to see what people clicked on. We're actually going to see whether someone clicked on the ad, whether someone eventually even bought. So finally, we can get ROI on marketing. We know what is the impact on, of our marketing on consumers I think it's true. It, we have moved a long, long way in the ability to show return on investment of marketing. And we, it is much easier now to have that conversation. And I think that marketeers that haven't taken that step have truly left behind and have still struggled with their, within their organizations. I will also mention that um, that promise may have been even too strong. We now started seeing the, the pendulum shifting on, on that statement in the sense that the fact that I see whether a customer clicked on an ad doesn't yet fully tell me whether it's a full return on investment, right? Yeah. It could have been that this customer would have bought anyway. So we need a, a some sometimes more sophisticated quantitative techniques in order to truly ask questions like attribution or incrementality and whether we truly have ROI on these. It seemed as if we solved the problem and now we realize the problem is we are way, way ahead, but there are still things to be done, which is where the world of quantitative marketing works on today. A few years ago, a marketer had to say, I see a correlation, but I may not be able to show causation. And now I think you're right. There are there still are numerous questions that we have. There's still challenges with attribution models. But I think we are much closer to being able to say, it's not just happening at the same time and isn't that nice. We're able to at least connect often some of those dots and say, well, I know that when my marketing spend goes up 13%, 27% of customers um, you know, purchase more, or 13 
per, you know, my marketing spend goes up 13% and 50% more individuals enter this online store. So we're able to do it in a way that, um, you know, if our attribution models are right and we have the right technology, at some point in the path, we can say there was a direct connection and we know that it's actually going to make a difference. And I think directionality is important, but directionality with, um, you know, some very specific models that show that relationship is what ultimately gets you farther um, in terms of, of your budget, in terms of being able to enter into new markets, and really buying into sort of the confidence of the C-suite, I think, which is, is super important. I think one of the things that truly help with that, and particularly in the world of digital marketing, is the ability to run these A-B tests, right? Yes. I mean, it's very difficult to say, you know, how, half of my customer are going to see one store, and half of my customer are going to see a different version of my store. You know, my store in my store is very difficult to, to, to play with it. In the online world, it, become, it became very easy. And, and, you know, I split my time between Colombia and Amazon. I spent some of my time at Amazon Advertising. Uh, the practice at Amazon Advertising is running these A-B tests, these let's try version A, version, version B. And when we do that, we truly can get to ROI. We truly can get to what is the difference between offering the customer version A and version B. It's, it's still easier to do in digital environment where we can take, you know, we have 100,000 visitors, we can split them half or any, any way we split them randomly and see, show to, to different customers different, uh, different offerings and see how it works. It's still a little bit more difficult in the offline world, but even there, we are making progress toward thinking in the, in the language of A-B tests, in the language of, of testing in order to measure ROI and in order to measure truly what customers want. I'll give you just a, an example of that. Uh, several years ago, I was working at a, a large company, and my role and my team's role was focused around telling investors the story of the success of the business. And when we had our hypothesis about which creative would work the best to get them to engage with fi our financial results, uh, I would have thought one thing, and we A-B tested over a period of about a year, so that's four, four quarters worth of data, and we actually found that in telling the story with our IP, so the shows themselves, when we use that as a creative investors, now this isn't an audience that you would naturally think would pay more attention to, um, you know, a character on a show than a Financial Times headline. But when we talked about our efforts and when we used the creative, when we used our IP, we found that the interest and the engagement in um, the information, the financial information about the company increased, you know, exponentially. And so I think, to your point, that's an A-B test that 10 years ago or 20 years ago, one, you wouldn't have been able to run, but two, you wouldn't have hypothesized that. But when we just have the ability to continue to test and swap in and swap out, and we see very clear results in the data, you know, it, it gives us confidence to both try new things, um, but then it gives us security in the decisions that we make because we know now that we can see that, that happening. Please subscribe to our YouTube channel and hit the subscribe button at the bottom of our website so you can get our newsletter and we can keep you up to date on upcoming live shows. What about the data? What kinds of data should marketers be collecting? What's the best way to get that data. And Oded, can you take us a little bit behind the scenes of the, the kinds of models that you're looking at? And again, 
my real interest here is the impact of that data and those models on the real lives of marketers. Hey, it sounds like a reality TV show, right? The real lives of marketers. <laughs> we have a fire hose of data, right? We have more data than we ever had before. It's still the situation that we don't always have the data we exactly need. We're always sometimes looking for the, the right data we need. There is this something we, we talk about in the book that you mentioned earlier that we call the, the certainty myth. There was this belief that finally, when we have all of this data, we'll get to the certain decisions. Cert certainty is a myth. We still make decisions under uncertainty, but we do have much more data than, than we ever had. And specifically, the data that marketeers um, value and cherish tend to be data that tells us about customer preferences, being able to mm. measure and understand customer preferences. And the, the, the reality of it, and, and the reason why it was difficult, it maybe still is difficult in some ways, is because of heterogeneity, uh, because customers are so different. There are no two customers that are the same. Uh, you know, I always tell my students, you know, that they, and, and I always find within my class these type of students, those who treat the Apple store like a, like a cult and those who would never be caught dead in an Apple store, right? And, and the marketeers needs to understand this and needs to understand this often with limited data, depending who you are. If you're Google or Amazon, you have a lot of data. If, you, uh, just, if you're a media outlet, you may have less data about, about the customer and, and who they are. Um, and we tend to see, unlike if you, if you go to data, for example, in finance, I can always go one more year and have longer data about, this, about stocks, right? I can also just do analysis of the entire market when it comes to, um, to stocks. When it comes to, to consumers, A, I cannot do data just on the entire market because of the heterogeneity that I I'm talking about. I do need to understand each customer and their own preferences. And I'm limited with respect to the history because if I'm talking about a travel, for example, if I'm Expedia or one of these, I only see you, you know, five, ten times. That's all I have. So I need to work with that length of history of what I observe uh, about the customer. But And that's where, where econometrics helps so, or, or, or statistics. There is a trade-off when it comes to data between how good your data is and how, how, how complicated your model needs to be. The better data you have, the simpler the model you can use. If, if, if we run the A-B test that I just talked about before, all I need to do is compare averages. Customer in the control bought that much. Customer in treatment bought that much. That's it. I mean, level of math that, that a, a, you know, a sixth grader could do. If I need now to build a model where I am, again, a, a Expedia and I'm trying to understand customer preferences from this visit and the previous visits and so on, that's where I need a much more sophisticated type of uh, modeling and type of, of analysis. The other maybe distinction I want to make about uh, data is the disti distinction between structured data and unstructured data. Until fairly recently, circa 2010, most of our analysis was, was done on what is called structured data. Structured data are numbers, data that comes in the form that we, by the way, generally think about data in Excel or in a table. With, with numbers in it. But if you think about it, majority of the data we have as business people, as marketeers, is actually unstructured data. It comes in text, image, video, audio. Customer mm -hmm. calls us to the call center. Uh, we have data in, in terms of tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of ads that we can, we can analyze. Ads are images and text. 
we have company reports. Different estimates depend who you ask, but 80 to 95% of data available for business is actually in the form of unstructured data in text, audio, video, and, and image. And it is only since 2010 that we actually know how to analyze this data at scale. I mean, unstructured data existed probably since the Ten Commandments, right, were written on a stone. Uh, but, but really, the, the ability to, to analyze this data at scale came with machine learning type, uh, machine learning methods uh, type tools. Um, and we st we, we're seeing more and more companies are using it. And of course, recently, the whole ChatGPT and generative AI is an example of leveraging unstructured data. Amy, you're a marketer. I'm assuming that you are not an expert statistician and oh, no. data scientist. <laughs> and so given what Oded was just describing in terms of the quantity of data, the quality of data, what can marketers do to take advantage of these important points, but without having to be a, a deep level statistician, for example? Don't be scared of data. I'm not a statistician, as you very correctly pointed out. I never have been. Um, but I think for marketers, when we talk about quantitative marketing or we talk about data-driven marketing, for some, especially individuals early on in their career, it sounds like they're going to have to be gathering the data sets. It sounds like they're going to have to be building the models. It sounds like they're going to have to be interpreting. And I think we're very lucky in that we have a whole generation of individuals who understand data, who are data scientists, who are insights and research-driven colleagues. And the more that we can develop very close relationships with those individuals as marketers, the better. Because most marketers I know aren't, as you said, statisticians. But what they do know is how to look at data, and I know we're going to talk a little bit about this, and say... Well, based on my understanding of the audience, this seems odd. Let's explore that. Or they have a question that they know they want to answer, and they know that the data is an important part of that. And so they can ask for help in building the model. So the first is, you know, you don't have to be the expert. Don't be scared. Don't not use it. Use it. Find a partner. Find a colleague. You know, find somebody who is the expert. Um, and the second is think about the data in a meaningful way. So you, as Oded said, uh, there's infinite data available. So it really is about what are you looking for? And then when something, and I know Oded's going to talk a little bit about this, when something doesn't feel right, ask more questions. And a, a good example of, of using kind of numbers and um, qualitative elements uh, happened a couple years ago. I worked in a publishing company and uh, it's very common for people to unsubscribe from subscription-based businesses, um, including magazines. And so you build a model and you know that churn will be X based on historical data. And you know that there might be some macro or micro conditions that will impact that year's churn. Uh, and you you go out and you acquire customers knowing this percent is going to leave and you need to have you know, X percent of new people coming in and, and subscribing. But as a marketer, it's not just about making sure that you can you know, fix the revenue equation on both sides. It's also about understanding your customers. So you have this model, we have this model, we know that X percent you know, are unsubscribing. 
And so then you have to dig deeper to think about why. What is it that, what's the reason that, you know, they've chosen to cancel this subscription? And we could get a little bit of insight in asking structured questions. And our hypothesis was it was a value situation. Somebody decided that that product, that the magazine was no longer worth what they were paying. Feels pretty simple, right? But we actually had done some brand research and had some qualitative components. And what the qualitative components told us was that actually it had nothing to do with value. It had nothing to do with the product. It was about unfinishability. Um, so people felt that this particular magazine was worth the price, worth, um, you know, worth, had, had great value, but they couldn't finish it. And they would stack it up in a pile and they would say, I'll come back to it. And they didn't. And every time they looked at the pile, it grew and their guilt. So this is an emotional reaction. Their guilt over not finishing the magazine was actually what was contributing to um, them canceling subscriptions. So that insight is not insight you were ever going to get from structured data. It's not even insight you were going to get from some of your survey questions. It came exclusively through some qualitative conversations. And there were some solutions to that digital uh, combated the problem a little bit because people can't finish the internet. So if you can't finish a digital issue of a magazine, you didn't feel as guilty. Um, you know, you can introduce newsletters and, and quick, quicker bites of content and summaries and things like that. Um, but I think the other important thing is, I, and I, I want to really reiterate this, is that there's the structured data, there's everything you know, there's quantitative, and then there's this other qualitative element that is equally as important for marketers to pair together. And I think it is important that we'll think about data in the most general sense of the word data. I mean, yeah. conversation with a person is data. I just maybe, maybe want to touch on, on, on one thing with respect to the, you know, when I build a model, a statistical model, and I, I truly mean it, I would, I would actually go to Amy first to tell me if this model is right before I would go to a statistician to tell me whether, whether they think my model is right. Because the true value comes from, let's say it's a model that predicts click-through click on an ad. And the model showed, you know, 20% click-through rate. A statistician wouldn't know to tell me that 20% click-through rate on an ad is unheard of. Unless your ad truly offered money to customers, no one, there's no, there's no one in five customers clicking, clicking on an ad. I need the marketeers. I need Amy to tell me, I don't know what you've done wrong, but I can tell you this is wrong because it's, it's impossible that customers, 20%, one in, one, one in five customers would click on your ad. We have a couple of questions that have come up on Twitter. Actually, two folks, Chris Peterson and Arsalan Khan, who are both regular listeners of CXO Talk, and so thank you guys are asking independently essentially the same question. And that is, where do we draw the line for privacy in terms of data-driven marketing? That's from Chris Peterson and Arsalan Khan says, how and who should strike a balance between collecting data that can affect privacy and who decides what's private, what's not, and also then you have the issue of biases. So can we talk about that and then we'll switch over to quantitative intuition. Privacy is an extremely important uh, topic to, to think about, to, to discuss, uh, to realize that, that companies have, have huge responsibility when we are collecting individual data. Uh, 
I think there, there, was, there, there is the issue of data being shared, and then there is the issue of, of data being used by, by the company. I mean, despite what actually most people think, most, at least the large companies, do not sell data. Now, I'm not sure it is, by the way, being done because, um, because of, of pure ethical issues or because data is just way too expensive to sell. Uh, the use of data by, by company, by again, the, think about the top companies like Facebook, Google, Amazon, is so important and useful for their own purposes that actually selling it would, be, would not be very, very wise. Uh, so generally, at least from these companies, data generally do not, do not flow around. It generally do, does tend to stay within these, these companies. But even there, they should treat it with a, with a responsibility that these data should be treated with. And that's where recent uh, um, regulation came about uh, first-party data, uh, where you're allowed to use your own data, but you're, you're, you're not allowed to actually use someone else's data, which, by the way, in and of itself, there is an interesting tweak there. It's, on the one hand, it sounds right. It it's indeed protects customers in terms of their data being, uh, being in floating around, but it also increases maybe the gap between the top companies that have really good first-party data, their own data, and the smaller companies that don't have their own data, and that's, wh that's where they could have closed the gap by getting data maybe from, from someone else. Uh, I do think that we, we shouldn't let the cat guard the milk uh, there. I think we do need regulation there. Right? I, and, and Europe is much better than the U.S. in that sense. Uh, we have made that mistake previously with social media, <laughs> where we, we, we let the, the companies guard themselves We've made it with privacy, and I think we need to move there. And I'm happy to see if there is generative AI. This conversation is starting already now, and not once this is fully fully out there. Um, uh, Amy, yeah. I don't know if you have other thoughts. Yeah, I, I mean, going to an, an even kind of uh, larger question is who owns the data? We're now in a world where our behavior has been tracked for a lo very long period of time, and there are reams of data. People probably know that I prefer baked macaroni and cheese, you know, over Brussels sprouts, but who doesn't? Um, you know, that, that data is gone. It sits with somebody. I hope I get an ad for macaroni and cheese. I will let everybody know uh, <laughs> shortly. But I think there's a larger question as we think about a next generation, right? Let's talk about kids, for instance, for whom maybe there's some data, there's not a lot. Who owns that data? Who should own that data? Is my child the holder of that data? Or is it the platforms on which they're engaging? And there have been these really large, high-level conversations around, you know, should I be able to own my data and I choose where, when, and how to monetize that? Or is there a trade-off? I get to go and watch cat videos or, you know, whatever it is, videos that I like. And in exchange, I'm giving somebody an insight. And I know that because I understand that's, you know, the way that a lot of practices work because I'm getting a pop-up that says there are cookies and I'm willingly engaging in a behavior. So I think there's both the kind of what is happening now? And then how do we think about data, the value of data, and ownership of data for a whole new generation? Um, a little bit off topic, but I think an important conversation for any of us who are, who are using data and whose data is being used and, and traded in some way. And we need to move to much more of an opt-in environment, right, where, where at least we make the decision of, of whether to share our data. Obviously, this is a 
crucially important topic, this issue of data privacy and data ownership. And we're not going to solve that one now. But what we can get a better understanding of is, Odev, Odev your concept of quantitative intuition. What is that and why does it matter? Quantitative intuition, I think this particularly is important in the world of marketing where, um, again, there is the, the more, um, if you will, the, the, the unstructured data that, that Amy talked about or the, the conversations that we have. We tend to use our intuition regularly in our private lives. Uh, you know, we, we, we talk about surprising things and interesting things. Sometimes we even call them gossip. But we, we, we are very wary of using our intuition when it comes to, to the world of, of business, to our, to our work life. And the idea here is not to just, you know, trust your gut. The idea here is as you are approaching data, bring in your, your judgment into it. In fact, we have to bring in your judgment into it. So on... On its surface, quantitative in, in intuition sound like an oxymoron, but um, I, in fact, together with my co-authors uh, for the book, Chris Frank and Paul Mignone, we believe that uh, not only that they're not oxymorons, particularly at the level of leadership, it's the only way. The only way to make decisions is to combine the data with a good sense of, of judgment. And when I say judgment, uh, I mean intuition or judgment this could come actually in, in at least three stages of, of, of the decision-making process. In the questions we ask, in being a very clear about what problem we are trying to solve. More often than not, we are just going on a, on, on a straight thing. Oh, we have been collecting all of this data. There's <laughs> got to be something interesting in it, right? We need to guide the process. To me, the, one of the biggest no-no in, in, in data-driven decision-making is we expect the data to provide both the questions and the answers. We should ask questions, then hopefully data can provide answers. In fact, we've learned it better than ever since November of 2020 with, with uh, 2022, sorry, with ChatGPT. We need to provide good prompts if you want to get good answers. We need to ask good questions. Second is something you already talked about. How do we interrogate data? And, and exactly what I mentioned, that you do need the context. As humans, we are very good in context, and particularly if you're an expert in your domain, as Amy is, in, Amy is in, in, in marketing, it's much easier for her to look at a model of very sophisticated analysis and interrogate it not from the p-value or from you didn't use these three-letter acronyms or another, but from this number doesn't make sense. I don't know what you've done wrong, but I can tell you that, that it doesn't make sense. And finally, a, a crucial place for, for judgment is in the synthesis of the information. Uh, generally, data and analysis will tell you the what. It would not tell you the so what. What do we need to do? What does it mean? And then now what, what are we going to do about it? And these are different components where we want to combine the, the quantitative together with the, with the intuition. I use the so what and the now what all the time after you taught me that. It, it's, uh, those two questions for marketers truly uh, will change the way that you approach your, your data and your strategy. So thank and you. And in fact, we said that one of the reasons we went on this journey of quantitative intuition was we were simply tired of meetings, of horrible meetings, of meetings that go on the what. And the, so we, we have yeah. a meeting and someone shows data. And now we're going to spend an hour talking about the what. In fact, there is a persona we talk about uh, in the book. We call them the Seymours. The Seymours in the organization are the ones who in every meeting have only one comment. Can I see more data? <laughs> um, and we can have meetings over meetings and postpone any decision forever by asking for more data, by, by, by keep digesting and, and, and slicing and, and slicing again the data. 
moving from from the what, right? From yeah. what's in the data to to what does it mean, right? What are the implications? And again, this is a place where you know people are fearing a lot with ChatGPT and so on, with generative AI. What's left for us as human humans? If all you do is the what, yeah, you will be replaced by, by a machine. But if your focus is on the so what, on what does it mean, on the now what, what are we going to do? Not yet. I mean, I'm not saying that machines will not get, get there at some point, but not at least in the near future. Arsalan comes back and he says, as AI continues to be used more and more, do we really need marketing people if AI can understand the context around that data? Yes. <laughs> Definitely, you do, you do. Um, and I'm sure Oded has a, a lot to say as well. I mean, where we are in terms of chat GPT right now is I would say it is a helpful assistant in many ways. Um, you know, having used it myself, my team uses it, it gets you, I'm making this number up, but let's say a third of the way, but it's not replacing what we're doing. It's not replacing the knowledge that we have. And it's not, doesn't always get the context and the nuances that are very specific to humans. And then even more, uh, you know, kind of granular or smaller, there are more subsets of nuances amongst different audiences. Now you could argue all of that is data and over time, maybe those things could be put into a formula and, and maybe it could be understood. But I think we're still a bit far away from saying this will resonate because, or from understanding that a word that means something in this context can be taken in an entirely different way uh, in that context, and that context is problematic. And so, yes, is it helpful, for instance, for summarizing some research that you might have? Absolutely. Does it give you something to gut check your approach? Can it provide more information? Yeah, it can. But we're not at the point where it could run a sophisticated campaign for you and get equal or greater results. Yeah, and I think, Michael, you, you really hit it on, on the head uh, with, the, with, the, with the word context. I think this is the key. The key is truly context, uh, both in terms of, by the way, how these methods have improved. So the difference between you know, GPT-2, which was the previous version, and the GPT-3.5, which is chat GPT, or now we already a GPT-4, is context, meaning, and what I mean by that is, in order to predict the next word, or in order, or in order to interpret a word, understand a word, what these tools do, they take the previous that many words to understand it, the context of the word. And the reason why, and it truly was, I mean, ChatGPT was a, a huge leap in innovation over the previous versions, is literally because of context, because they had, they use, they use what is called 8,000 tokens. Think about 8,000 tokens, something like 6,000 words, because it includes periods and so on. But six, the, the previous 6,000 words to understand a particular word. The previous versions, for example, GPT-2 used 2,000 words to understand any particular word. As humans, we are tremendous actually in doing that in, in context. I'll give you two examples. Uh, the first example is when I say the word model, and in fact, it, Michael, when you use the word model, both of us understood that in, the, in this context, we are not talking about the fashion type. <laughs> We're talking about the nerdy type, right? Because we have enough context to understand that in this conversation, Unless I'm going to give you a real clue with my previous words that we are talking about the fashion type model, we are talking about the nerdy type, right? And, and 
in fact, we don't even understand how good uh, or, or how I, our brain actually um, understand context. I'll give you an example for that. Think about a toddler, a one and a half year old, does not have the intelligence to speak yet. And we show them illustration in a book and the book has an um, illustration of a cat and we tell them this thing does meow. And then we, we show them illustration in the same book of a dog, kind of a book about animals as we often read to our uh, one and a half year olds and we tell them, well, this thing does woof. And then we show them maybe four or five times illustration, different illustrations from different books and so on. The next day, we're gonna take them to the street. They cannot speak yet. They're going to see a cat or a dog, a real, a real cat and a dog, real first time ever they see a real one. And they're actually gonna meow, meow and woof without even, a, a, again, they can't speak yet, but they do it with five observations. Mm-hmm. A few years back was the first time that machines went close to human level in detecting cats from dogs, from images. And they've done it because a researcher made available two million observations tagged by humans of cats and dogs. How can a human do it with four or five observations and a machine needs two million? We don't understand how we do it with only four or five observations. If we did, we would have trained machines to do it because it will be very useful to have less data. And I think that gives you the, 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 the understanding of why when it comes to the so what and the now what, we don't have enough data of, of similar so what and now what. Maybe if you are a physician and we have enough decisions of the kind given symptoms, maybe it works. But for a typical business decision, which is, doesn't come that often, it's unlikely. It's unlikely that at least not with the current tools and where we are today or even in the near future, that machines would have enough context, these 8,000 contexts, but repeatedly with enough data to truly go to, to, to that step. Again, may happen at some point, not yet. If you want one place where it did happen already and happened before generative AI, online advertising, the allocation of ads of which ad I'm, I'm seeing, when I go to Google or when I go to uh, Amazon or Facebook is almost fully automated apart from the choice of the creative of the advertiser. Yeah. That has been already automated because the rules are fairly clear. There isn't a oh, so what does it mean? Well, it means that this ad is likely to lead to a higher click-through rate than another ad. That's a predictive model. Machine learning uh, can do that already. How can marketers avoid being data myopic, which is to say, losing sight of the fact that business decisions involve people, circumstances, we use that term context, and not just numbers? When marketing has a seat at the table, and is involved in the strategic decisions, things like growth or new audiences or understand where value is derived for a company, that's when they can put together the pieces and they're not only seeing their small part. So I think being part of having a marketer truly, truly involved at the senior level with the seat at the table who's um, you know, just as involved as anyone else in the growth of the company is really important because it then becomes top-down. You ask your team not to look at this slice. You ask your team to think about how it connects to something larger. Oded, how can organizations strike the right balance between relying on quantitative marketing techniques versus trusting their own intuition and experience, bringing the two together? Ask yourself, as you're looking at data, ask yourself what surprised you. 
And it's amazing how this fairly simple, deceptively simple question often cuts straight to the, straight to the chase. You're either finding a mistake or you're finding an insight. Mm. Either way, you benefit. Um, so in other words, don't trust your gut, trust your doubts. Look for these, these surprises in, in the data. Amy, you're going to get the last word here. What advice do you have for marketers, given everything we've just been talking about? Your best friend is the person who can build the models. You're, uh, you need to be embedded in business decisions to drive true value. And I don't think that chat GPT will take our jobs, but if you don't know how to use it to make yourself more efficient or more effective as a marketer, it will. So it's not a substitute, but it's an important complement that we all have to be using and working with on a daily basis. Can I accurately paraphrase that as saying, be part of the business, understand the tools, understand the data, and bring all of that together to make the decisions that rely on both the data and your experience with the business and with the context. Even better. And with that, a huge thank you to Oded Netzer and Amy Jake from the Columbia Business School at Columbia University. Thank you both for taking the time to be with us and share your expertise with us today. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, thank you, Michael. And thank you to the audience. And thank you to the audience. You guys are awesome and your questions are great. Now, before you go, please subscribe to our YouTube channel and hit the subscribe button at the bottom of our website so you can get our newsletter and we can keep you up to date on upcoming live shows just like this one. Thanks so much, everybody. Check out CXOTalk.com and we'll see you next time. Have a great day.